All right. Well, one of the biggest problems, <laughs> as we were just talking about before we went live, you know, uh, here's the thing, guys, as, as we're jumping in here, um, you know, I, I, I always hear this my body, my choice sort of argument. And I've always thought that I've had really good responses to this and been able to think through it with students, with people online and, and offer some thoughts. And then I listened to Josh talk and I went, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I think that there are much more persuasive arguments to be had. And so that is what I reached out to my guest. And I went, look, I want to have a conversation on this issue. And he graciously accepted the, the, the invitation to come on. So let's, let me just first say, Josh, and then I'll tell people a little bit about you. Thanks for coming on yeah. for this conversation. I'm so glad to be here. I am looking <laughs> forward to this. Absolutely. So my goal here, uh, our goal is is to help you think deeply about this issue, right? This is a big issue, whether you are pro-choice, whether you are pro-life, coming into this conversation. Um, I really think that people are kind of talking past each other when they say my body, my choice. It can mean different things. We're going to talk about that. And so my goal here is to help you think deeply about this issue, to understand some distinctions and differences so that you can be more persuasive in the conversations that you have. And if you're new to the show, my name is Ryan Polly, and it's always my goal to get you to think deeply about Christianity, to engage your mind so that then you can go out and more effectively engage the culture. And so joining me is Josh Brom. He is the director of the Equal Rights Institute. He's been working in the pro-life movement since he was 18, launched uh, this ministry that we're going to talk about a little bit after 12 years, he speaks all over the country. He has debated leaders from Planned Parenthood and NARAL and other abortion groups. And his passion, as you're going to see in this conversation, is to help pro-life people become more persuasive when they communicate with pro the pro-choice people. And also what that means is we're going to talk about a little bit is giving up some of those things that I often maybe said, some of the kind of the faulty rhetoric or tactics that pro-life people have and embrace uh, arguments that really Really hold up. And so my hope, if you're still with me, is to say, or my 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 plea to you, I guess, is if you're still here, is look, there's something that you're going to learn here. I and, and I think that this is going to be valuable to you no matter who you are. So Josh, with that, again, thanks for coming on. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I just gave that brief introduction, but kind of what got you into this, these conversations mm -hmm. at 18 um, and kind of what are you doing now uh, to to kind of help people understand what we're going to be talking about here on the show today? Yeah, thanks. Uh, after an intro like that, we'll just hope that I don't <laughs> disappoint. But I, I actually knew I was going to be a pro-life speaker when I was 11 years old. So my story starts young. I got my calling young, and it's just because my dad, we went to a very pro-life church, um, and my dad at one point took me with a group of a couple of guys to an abortion clinic in downtown Sacramento to pray. Now, no one had told me what abortion was. I hadn't even had the talk yet. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> So I'm like this bored 11-year-old. I don't even understand what they're, what they're praying about. We're in front of this weird brick building. Um, and so later that day, my parents told me, like, what the, I, I asked what that was about. And so they told me, and I felt this, I kind of went through this series of three emotions where I felt surprised first because this, like, the church we went to, we were a Protestant church, but, like, very homeschool-friendly and very conservative. And people had, like, sometimes eight, nine, ten kids, and it wasn't, that like, weird. And so I just thought that anyone would want to not have kids was kind of foreign to me. Um, and then I felt really, really sad. And then like any overzealous homeschool kid, I just got this like growing sense of, I guess I'm going to have to stop that when I grow up, you know, I'm going to be William Wilberforce, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so I read Frank Beckwith had just put out his first, uh, pro-life book, politically correct death. So I read that I didn't understand half of it, but I 
I read it. And then we, my parents were really early supporters of kind of the first pro-life apologist named Scott Klusendorf. Uh, and he kind of brought apologetics into the pro-life movement. So I had some early Scott tapes. I think it was even before he was at Stand to Reason um, of him at Hume Lake. And I listened to those tapes so many times. I memorized his arguments. I memorized his jokes. And I was like, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I like the apologetics angle. Um, and so I kind of knew I wanted to do this uh, when I got older. I turned down a, a music career to do this instead. What I'm doing now at, at ERI is I kind of, I'm, I, I, I like to say I try to help pro-life people to be less weird. And when, <laughs> I like I, and when I say weird, I mean those people that are well-meaning but off-putting. And so it's kind of like we, we focus on two ends of what you would think would be a spectrum. Like you can only, like you would probably only focus on one. Is on one hand, as we're going to talk about today, I love philosophy and I like thinking about like the steel man version of pro-choice arguments and what are the maybe pro-life arguments that aren't very persuasive or even philosophically uh, adequate. And so I like that stuff and I want to help people like pro-life people to think well. It bugs me when I see pro-life people making big like kind of reasoning mistakes and it's like that's hurting our side. But on yeah. the other hand, like where my heart really is, is I want to help the pro-life movement to become more gracious and loving. So it's like, I'm, I'm fascinated by the question, what would it look like if a, if Jesus talked to a pro-choice person, right? Like what would his body language look like? What would he ask? What would he not ask? What would it sound like when he made arguments that were grounded in truth, but spoken with gentleness and grace? So I want to help like the whole pro-life movement to get closer to that Mark. And so we do R&D. When we go into college campuses, that's our lab. And we're trying to figure out what is working right now. Truth doesn't change, but culture does. Gen Z, psych, you know, psychologically processes data just differently than Gen X does, which means that sometimes the arguments that used to work might maybe doesn't right. work as well now just because people are thinking differently. So we're trying to figure out what is working the best right now. What is the most persuasive, not just what is a true argument. And we then try to teach that to as many people as we can. I love to do speaking. We're doing a lot of speaking. We've got a podcast. We make a lot of YouTube videos. Uh, we're on, so we're, we're on TikTok now that oh, actually go. I got, I got, I got <laughs> it, it persuaded to do TikTok is of Tim Barnett, uh, which I know is kind of how you found me when I, when I did Tim's uh, uh, show and he had had this TikTok video go viral. And so I was like, we should try TikTok. And so we tried it. We didn't really think it would work. And we have, in the last couple of months, a million views. We've never wow. been successful on any social media platform. <laughs> but now, somehow, TikTok is the thing. Um, and so we're just trying to figure out ways that we can be engaging with pro-choice people and, of course, training pro-life people to, to think better, whether it's through online courses or articles or all the different things. Yeah, man, I think your story is so similar to mine in the sense that, like— huh. Uh, well, one, I got on TikTok very reluctantly. I did not want it. I wanted nothing uh -huh. to do with it. And it was someone else that persuaded me. And it was kind of this idea of like, there's so many bad arguments on TikTok. And there's so many yeah. people being persuaded by these bad arguments against Christianity and then Christians presenting bad arguments. Like, man, it, can we not get into some of these spaces and try to present a little bit of clarity right. and maybe some better arguments? And so that's always been my hope too, is like trying to help, you know, when I see people make not necessarily just in right the pro-life kind of cause but 
more basic kind of apologetics and, and, and arguments for Christianity. Just the other day, uh, someone posted on Twitter about the Trinity trying to say, how does this make sense? And a Christian jumped in and it's like, well, here's what the Trinity is. You got it wrong. And then they explained it in a completely heretical way. And, uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, which is so common. It's like, you oh, got it Patrick. wrong. You you got it wrong too. Uh, yeah, I love that video. Um, <laughs> that's modalism, Patrick. Modalism, Patrick. <laughs> and it's, I was like, you know, how can we do this? But at the same time, as you said, uh, there's so many times that we stand up for what is true and don't do it in necessarily the most loving and the most gracious way. And so how do we bring those yeah. two things together? And so uh, you mentioned here kind of briefly before we jump in uh, yeah. to kind of some of the content that I really want to discuss with you is is you're going on to college campuses. And, and, and this is yep. one thing, again, I loved and why I think I learned so much and why I wanted to have you on and hopefully that my audience too will learn is that it's, as you said, truth does not change, but kind of culture does and people do. And so an argument that is a true argument that worked really well, maybe five or 10 years ago, even though the argument is still true, it may not be as persuasive. And so you are going on to college campuses, uh, getting into many conversations trying to not only figure out like maybe not only like uh, talk about you know what we're uh, or, or uh, help people see what you're talking about making the case for life uh, but also you know using that as kind of a sounding board figure out what is persuasive persuasive and what works and so kind of kind of work through walk through that a little bit of like <clears throat> how many of these conversations are you having um and hmm. and kind of what got you into maybe you know trying this out so to speak on college campuses do you have a big group kind of doing this yeah. what does that look like yeah that's a great question so uh, we've had, so our founding staff, uh, I co-founded ERI with, with my brother, Tim, uh, who had a philosophy degree from Biola. And then we pretty quickly hired a guy named Jacob. Tim and Jacob have both worked with Justice for All, which is one of my favorite pro-life groups uh, in, in the country. And so the three of us between us had cumulatively had about 5,000-ish conversations with pro-choice people, uh, mainly on college campuses. And college campuses are still my favorite place to do outreach because, well, there's a few reasons. So one, it's the least weird place for strangers to talk about moral or political issues together sure. that might change at some point but it's still it's like not that weird for this <laughs> thing to be happening um where we're trying to you know kind of like fish for conversations um college uh that that age range is also the number one age range for people having abortions i think a lot of christians think of this as like a teen atheist problem it's not it's a college student problem it's mm -hmm. almost impossible uh, the way college campuses are set up to for to be like a single mom um, and then also like finish your education. And so it's a lot of uh, college age people. So we talk to people sometimes that are, you know, pre-abortive, but maybe pre-abortive within, the, you know, this next year um, or maybe recently post-abortive. So there's that. And then as far as like pro-life people too, frankly, young pro-lifers tend to be on average more open to what we have to say. There are lots of older pro-lifers that love ERI. But for some people, sometimes there's a little bit of an old dog, new tricks thing. And when mm. me, a 38-year-old, comes in and kind of says, let me tell you about the arguments that are working the best right now, sometimes people kind of hear, oh, you're saying that the arguments that I've been using for the last 30 years are ineffective or faulty, like, like and, and they get kind of defensive. Whereas if I go in front of a college you know, group and say, we've had 5,000 conversations, we've learned a lot of things from mistakes and things that worked well, they're at the edge of their seat. There's like no defensiveness. They're just like, let tell me the things. Tell me what you've learned. And so we, we that's kind of our, our demographic that we're focusing on the most. And hopefully in the next few decades, when some of those people start taking over the pro-life movement, we will also have then a more effective 
movement because it is just also the case on average that younger people are more open to changing their techniques than like leaders who have been running pro-life organizations for for decades and have kind of you know landed in a certain place there are exceptions yeah. to that rule but not a lot of them so far Man, Josh, I wish we would have met each other sooner. I feel like there's just thinking so Me much too. alike. I mean, like, <laughs> this is great. It's my um, fault. I'm a terrible networker, <laughs> so it's totally on me. I'm so glad that we have met now. <laughs> I know. For everyone listening, this is the first time we met each other. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, no, it's like, you know, that, that's how, like, as, as working with, like, high school students, right? And I'm teaching this every single day in my job. And it's like trying to figure out, like, how can I explain this an idea that, that helps them make sense? And, yeah. and, try, and I'm always trying to think of analogies and trying to think of examples and trying to help them work through about, okay, think about it like this. And, and I think that that is a, it's helped. I've gotten some comments of like, Hey, I really like how you kind of process through this in the, using these analogies. And so I'm trying to take what people do. And it's like, okay, now how can I apply this to situations they're going through? Because again, simply just going over content is, is, is true, but maybe not necessarily the most persuasive. And so, yeah. um, all right. Nice. So we're not we going to, a lot in common. You're yeah, totally there you go. our people. I love this. <laughs> so, so, the goal of this show for, you know, those listening is not necessarily to make a, a defense or build the case right for life. I've talked about that in the past. I know you kind of do that a little bit differently. Um, and, and so um, mainly, again, what I wanted to focus on, what I said at the beginning is, is that I think that when pro-lifers make a case for life, often a response is, I get that, but the women still have the right to choose. Right. And so yep. what do you do when you have defended life, when you have made the case that the unborn is a valuable, distinct living and you know, whole human being? And they say, yeah, mm -hmm. but abortion should still be legal. Um, now, right. really quickly, though, kind of to back up is um, you have a video uh, that you've also done. Uh, and, and I saw the comment section. And, and this is kind of, again, where it popped up again in the comment section where you made a really good argument for life. And then in the comment section, the same thing was said. I get that. But. The, you still can't force a woman to carry a pregnancy. So kind of just jump into kind of that objection, maybe. I, I'd love to get yeah. you to kind of share that kind of maybe argument of what you can maybe in that video, at least what you considered. I don't know if it's changed now, but what would you consider maybe is the best uh, argument for the pro-life position? And then we'll kind of use that objection to then kind of get into what I really want to talk about. So, so okay, so clarification question. So, we, I, so I understood all of that, but when you say the best argument for the pro-life position, do you mean kind of start like the best like general argument for the pro-life position that then kind of tends to lead into body rights arguments? Is that what you're asking me for? I, I guess, I, may, I don't know, not necessarily. I, I guess I, I'm pulling from a video that I, I saw you do, right, where it was kind of titled that, and you kind of said, here's what I think is the best, where you, where you look at and you say, yes. these people have the right to life, you know, that, that kind of argument. Yes. The equal rights argument. So yeah, so, yes. so it's like the very short version of that. So, and this is something that we kind of discovered even pre-ERI along with Justice for All. We we heard JP or Steve Wagner, I should say, heard JP Moreland say something like this. And then we started trying to figure out a way to make this work on campuses all across the country. And we were just stunned because we'd never seen so many pro-choice people change their mind right in front of us. So wow. this the shortest way I can do this is just sort of like in story form. I'll just kind of like tell <laughs> the argument as opposed yeah. to teaching it step by step. But so like, for example, several years ago, I'm at um, University of Michigan. I'm sitting on our poll table where you will usually find me at an outreach. We have set up a poll table, kind of like JFA often does, which asks, should abortion remain legal? We have a yes option and no option. And it, it depends option in the middle because we don't want people to feel like we're forcing them into an extreme. Like just label yourself. everyone. It's not a real poll. This is not statistically relevant. It's like, <laughs> come talk to us, you know? 
but I'm sitting on the table because I'm kind of a tall guy and I don't like it when tall guys lord their height over short women. So I'm sitting <laughs> to try to be relaxed and bring my height down a little bit. And I'm talking to these three uh, super pro-choice uh, young women who kind of vented at me for a while and, and kind of lectured me and gave me some of their arguments. And to their credit, one of them finally said, well, what is your argument? What's your, why are you here? Why, why are you pro-life? And I said, I think I can explain to you why I'm pro-life in about two minutes. And she said, go. So it's kind of like, okay. So I said, I'm a very open-minded person. I'm a very open-minded person, which means I'm a very uncomfortable person. I hold almost all of my views with a pretty open hand. Um, but one of the things that would be the hardest for you to change my mind on is this, is that everyone that I can see right now has an equal right to life or an equal protection from violence, which is kind of interesting because there are a lot of differences. There's differences. And, you know, we, we all agree that everyone, all the human adults have an equal right to life, even though like regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation or disability status or like any of those things, race, ethnicity, like we all agree those people have an equal protection from violence. Um, uh, but then like we think about, so like try to figure out like why that is. What, like, so let's think about equality. Um, it seems like, would you agree that like newborns have an equal right to life? Most people would agree that newborns are also in outside of like poor philosophers. Um, and then, and then I'll usually kind of ask about squirrels. And they usually do this more dialogue style with a lot more questions, but she only gave me two minutes. So I had to kind of monologue it. <laughs> but I'm like, so like, then like we think about squirrels and, and like, should squirrels be in that, like imagine a circle with an, with like everyone, everything inside of it gets an equal protection from violence. And most of us would agree that it, doesn't like we, we probably shouldn't like indiscriminately just like kill them or torture them but it's not the same as killing a toddler and so so i try to think about like what does that tell us so what is the thing that gets you into that circle what is that you know for philosophers what is the property that that, that grants you access and it's got to be a non-degreed thing it's got to be a thing that you can either have or you can't it can't be like a dimmer switch it's got to be a light like, like like a light switch so like a couple of common pro-choice responses sentience but usually they mean like minimal awareness of the world around you, minimal experiences. I'll be like, okay, that kind of makes sense at an intuitive level. But then like squirrels would be in, right? right. Because squirrels are sentient. And then, uh, and then they might be like, well, what about self-awareness? Okay, so like having this idea that you are a unique entity that will exist over a period of time and being able to understand that. Well, newborns can't do that. You can't do that until three or six months old. At the earliest levels of self-awareness and more advanced, you're talking more like 18 to 24 months old. So now newborns are out. So it's just like a lot of these pro-choice answers, I think, just have this problem. They either kick the newborns out of the circle or they let squirrels and a lot of the other animals into the circle. And so I think it's something like human nature. I think something like human nature gets us in. And that would make the most sense of our intuitions. And if that's true, and if the unborn have that, which they totally do then they get an equal protection for violence too, regardless of our instinct. And I said, notice something. This is not a religious argument, and this is not an emotional argument. I'm not pro-life for emotional reasons. I do not get the warm fuzzies when I look at a picture of a zygote. It does nothing for me. Frankly, I am far more sympathetic to the woman who wants to have the abortion. I am pro-life, though, for rational reasons. This is the most rational conclusion that I can come to. And in the long, sad history of the human race, we have taken groups of humans and said they are not persons and discriminate against them. And every time we've looked back with horror at that, and I think this is just kind of one more case in that history, and I have not yet heard a good reason to discriminate against the unborn. So if you're going to be pro-equality, then you should be pro-life. And that's kind of where I left it. And so we're basically trying to force them to pick, are you going to be pro-equality or pro-choice? And try to say, you've got to pick between the two. And most young people care more 
about equality and care more right. frankly about thinking of themselves as someone who cares about equality. Yeah. Then they are attached to the pro-choice position and then will move over to the pro-life position. Interesting. Now, I'm curious as you kind of work through that, um, how many, because I, I think of the, uh, a major focus of the pro-life movement is to build a case that the unborn is human. And there's ways of doing yeah. that from philosophy and embryology and all that kind of stuff. In your experience, having these conversations on college campuses, how many students actually need that case to be built? How many are sitting there believing this mm. is not a person? This is not a human. It is just a clump of cells, a blob of tissue. What, you know, kind of those talking points that sometimes we often hear posted online yeah. uh, versus how many would you say like, no, like that is a person. And as we're going to get to, but then there's another reason why this should still be allowed. That's a very good question. So on the human thing, there is a certain kind of argument that we almost never have to have on college campuses. You do on TikTok as the level of dialogue on TikTok <laughs> or the in intellect on TikTok is on average way lower. Well, so that's we why I started. That's why I started TikTok. And like after a while, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is just so yeah. frustrating. Like and I it's almost never lot. post anymore. <laughs> it's a lot. I uh, definitely check out our TikTok and see like Emily is doing something that is really unique and seems to be working. And these approaches people change their mind now. But it is there's a lot of challenges for sure. Yeah. So, so on college campuses where we're self-selecting sort of like, let's say, maybe the top 20 percent of pro-choice kind of people as far as, you know, the way that they're thinking we almost never have to argue that the unborn is biologically alive or biologically a member of our species. Like that is just not really a thing anymore for thoughtful pro-choice people. We occasionally still have to talk about it being an organism. You still everyone will get that like, well, wait, aren't like sperm, you know, living cells with human <laughs> DNA. They think we're making a human DNA based argument, which we're not. Right. And so we, we have to do that for once. But typically speaking, there are these two big, differences between pro-life and pro-choice people right. and one of them is personhood is the unborn a not just a member of our species but like morally valuable is it philosophically is it the kind of thing that you and i are this thing with with you know, with 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 value and and rights and then also they have this bodily autonomy concern so i think most pro-choice people have both concerns simultaneously they've got like a dual argument going on i kind of think of it like uh, like bodily rights arguments are like the safety net. Like they've got, they don't think it's a person usually, at least not in the first trimester. But it's kind of like, even if we change their mind about that, they can land in this nice bodily rights safety net because most pro-life people, frankly, don't respond to bodily rights arguments that persuasively. And so there's a few pro-lifers, I'm sorry, pro-choice people who literally are only pro-choice because of the bodily autonomy thing, but that's that's more rare. So typically, I'll make the equal rights argument, and then they will jump to bodily rights. And then sometimes I'll make a good bodily rights response, and they'll jump back to personhood. So you kind of have to do this meta-conversation thing, a standard reason they, they, they call it narrating the debate, where it's like, I need you to pick one of these things. I'll, you can pick. Right. I don't care. Like it's, we got to camp somewhere for us to make this work. But yeah, typically, if you talk about abortion for very long, it's going to end up a bodily rights argument. And I believe personally that that is more fundamental to pro-choice people's worldviews. I think they care more about the bodily rights thing. It is driving their viewpoint more than the person did. Yeah, and that's why, you know, I, I titled this and I wanted to kind of think through this idea of like the right to life versus like personal freedom, right? Another way I think of saying mm. bodily autonomy and bodily rights. Uh, but uh, in my mind, and I'm curious if, if this is true and you would agree or disagree with this, but in my mind, um, 
when pro-life people hear my body, my choice, they, 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 they probably jump to the conclusion they're making a personhood argument uh, where yes. then we, we jump into saying, well, but the unborn in you is not your body. This is a unique person. This is a distinct person. And we assume that is what is being said by my body, my choice, when possibly they're making a different version of the argument. They're not making the personhood version, but maybe the bodily autonomy version. Would you, it seems like you're agreeing it's with that. It's <laughs> actually worse than that. That is okay. true. There is a straw man version of this where we think that they're making like this degree of dependency kind of a thing. Like they're saying, because it's dependent, it's not a person. That does happen every once in a while. A lot of pro-life people actually straw man it into a stupider argument than that, which is that they think it's biologically like an organ, like a kidney or something, that when we say it's a part of her body, that it's like you think of it as like literally a part of a mother's body. And so then, and I've used this before, I'm, I've done this too, where it's like, well, then wouldn't women have two noses and four eyes and, you know, half the time have working male genitalia, like when they're pregnant? And it's like, that's, it's cute, but it's not responding to more than like 1% of pro-choice people. That is such <laughs> a stupid view. And if you're responding to something that's really stupid, you are probably the one mis misunderstanding them. Like there are stupid people on both sides, but most people aren't that dumb. And so usually I think probably like 1%, they mean it's like a body part and probably let's say maybe in the 10%, 20% mean like a person thing almost everyone and we ask clarification questions to find out right. almost everyone means some version of a bodily autonomy argument so there's kind of kind of a couple of subcategories there right. but they mean something in that ballpark yeah and i want to get to those those categories of the bodily autonomy and 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 i, I love that's a, again as i listen to you i'm like oh my goodness like because i i've used some of those arguments as you mentioned that you use them too i've used them and, yep. and i think that they're arguments that like when you you say well, like hey well then does a woman have you know 20 toes and 20 fingers and right. four hands and four feet and then people go oh yeah that is silly and then i think then you know, a bunch of pro-life you know students and other people are like wow that's a great response because it does show yeah. how silly this is and it's like yeah if that's what someone is holding to then that is a valid response but again are we actually now twisting are we straw manning are we assuming that when someone says my body my choice they mean this and therefore that would be yeah. an appropriate response or do they actually maybe have a better argument to think through and that's yeah. why i think and that's why i want to have this and like i don't know how to title this thing because it's like i want <laughs> pro-lifers to realize when you hear my body my choice there's something deeper you need to think through and i think you're going to learn from this because i did and so okay now you've got me on one of my like passion things so let me just like add, add a little bit to that because i'm so glad that's you my job as the host that's my job <laughs> then we will go where you want so it's it is problematic that so many people and this happens on both sides but i'm gonna i'm gonna pick on the pro-lifers for the sake of this one it is a problem or just conservatives in general and not all pro-life people are conservative, but generally speaking, there's, a, there's an often a correlation there, at least right now. So it is a problem that pro-lifers here, apologists or pro-life teachers or whatever, teach like, here's like the, the mic drop, you know, refutation of that thing. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, they're so dumb. Like, it is a problem. And we like that. Like, I think like one of the reasons, frankly, why I think it is hard for ERI to gain traction is because we are working, like, we are swimming against the stream. We are working against vice. People would rather, frankly, 
listen to someone like Ben Shapiro every day yeah. talk in a way, and I'm not saying Ben's always wrong, but there's a smugness there, and Ben is, uh, admits that, that kind of indicates the other side, the left in this case, are dumb or morally bad or the enemy. And there's all kinds of examples of that on both sides. And the problem is when we listen to that every day, it affects the way we think. And I think it actually hurts our souls. And then, of course, we're like, yeah, pro-choice people are that dumb. And it's like, I'm telling you from after, you know, 5,000 conversations and some like pro-choice friendships that have lasted five plus years, a lot of pro-choice people are really, really smart. Yeah. Absolutely. And when we grant that, when we assume the best about someone, not only does that make us have better conversations, it makes us treat them with love and respect. But then I think it also then forces us to then create better arguments and have better yes. reasons because, yeah, you know, I was just talking about this the other day and this, I guess, kind of off topic, but the same idea of like, it's I, I don't get stage fright speaking in front of groups anymore. It doesn't matter if it's 10 people or, or 2000 people. What freaks me out is who's in the audience. Right. Because if mm. I'm speaking yep. to someone I know I knows that. more than what I know on a topic, um, then I freak out because they will catch me in the tiniest little slip up. And, and so I have to be <laughs> extremely precise in my language and I have to put so much yep. thought into how I say something, because if I say it wrong, they're going to know. And it was the same way yep. when I was translating from English to Spanish uh, when I was a missionary. It's like, man, I was great when I was by myself and no one in the audience knew English and no one on the team I was translating for knew Spanish. And I could say whatever I said. And it was that comfortability and that ease. Not that I'm just making stuff up, but the moment someone sits in the audience, like the missionary I was working for that knows better mm -hmm. than I, uh, then all of a sudden that pressure builds because, and, but I, but yeah. I think it's a good pressure. It is yes. such a good pressure because it forces yeah. us to be better with how we say things and not be, be, be as flippant. Yeah. And so I think that's a really good pressure, thing. So I love that. Cause I, cause I feel t I I'm so the same way, Brian. And, and that pressure can come from both sides. Right. So like, on the pro-life side, like I did a talk one time and Frank Beckwith showed up because it happened to be the campus that he teaches. I didn't expect that. And I was doing a philosophy talk and I was just like, oh man, like I get that. Like I gotta be really careful. And he was like involved in the Q&A, like asking questions, like good questions. And it's like, so, so there's that pressure that forces us to be better. But then there's like when pro-choice people come, like when I speak on a college campuses, like pro-choice people come and I can tell like sometimes they've got like blue hair and they're staring daggers at me and maybe have a protest sign ready to go. Like I can tell. And it's just like, and that just gives you the sense of like, I gotta be really, really cautious here. But I have found that if you take approach, an approach, and this is, I think, unfortunately kind of unusual for conservative speakers right now, where it's like, I'm not here to make a splash. I'm not here to, to make you angry or get you to protest so right. I can get some social media attention because a bunch of people yell at me. Like if we just like, I start off with like a 10 minute over the top, friendly, respectful, like intro for pro-choice people in the audience. And every single time the protest signs drop to the floor, I can see their walls come down. And then they're asking great questions in q &A. They listen to the entire thing and they're thanking me, me for a good talk at the end. So you're right. That pressure from not always the friendliest audience is really, yeah. really good for us. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it reminds me too, I was, I was teaching my high school students on sexuality and transgenderism. And, and one of the students oh, said, wow. how would you, how would you teach this different if a gay or transgender student was in mm. your classroom? And I said, you know, I, I, I don't think I would teach it differently. Like I, I I'm, I'm not as, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm not assuming, oh, you're all on my side. Therefore I can be right. flippant and joke. It's like, there very much could be, and I don't know. And so like, yeah. we need to teach it in a way that we don't know necessarily who's listening. Okay. So, good for you. oh man, so good. I'm loving this. Um, man, this is fun. Uh, okay. So 
uh, pro-lifers often misunderstand. Uh, I think jump to personhood. I've done this. It happens frequently. And you're saying, so the unborn is not a person. Let me show you how the unborn is a person. Often a different argument is being made. Something like, no, I get that this is, like I said, that this is a human. This is a unique person. This is a different person inside of me. The unborn maybe is a valuable human with the right to life, but it is still the woman's body and you have this idea of bodily autonomy. Now you mentioned there's two different versions of this. And so kind of what does this look like? What could someone be saying when they're using my body, my choice in this bodily autonomy argument? Yeah. So the two categories, and this is, this is uh, Trent Horns, my friend Trent Horns, maybe most helpful contribution to the entire pro-life movement is noticing that there are these two categories because before Trent, Pro-life apologists were typically kind of lumping everything into one category. Um, and sometimes the responses don't always work. Like it's really helpful to, to distinguish these two things. Um, so Trent, use, I just use the same labels Trent does. So he talks about sovereign zone arguments. This is a weaker pro-choice argument because it makes a really extreme claim. It says that women can do whatever they want with anything inside of their body. Now, the way I'm, both of these arguments, they are, they're for the argument to work, they are conceding for the sake of argument that it's a person, even if they don't believe it's a person, it's just right. like, you don't even need it if it's a person. But they're like, even if it is a person, just like you said, and they'll just say like, a woman can do whatever she wants with anything inside of her body. Like you can't kill someone outside of your body, but if it's in your body, the rules change. So that's sovereign zone. And we can talk about how to refute those if you want. But then the more interesting category are right to refuse arguments. And those, this is where like Judith Jarvis Thompson in, in 71 came in to say like, look, some of these bodily rights arguments aren't, this is not the most persuasive way to do this. Let's add some nuance into it and would say that women don't necessarily have a right to do anything they want with their bodies. But one thing they should have the right to do is to refuse right. to have their body forcibly like used as like a life support machine for another person. Like you shouldn't have to be connected to other people um, and, and having them like use your body that way. Um, and so those are like the two kind of categories of bodily rights arguments. You got to kind of ask clarification questions to get a sense of where they're coming from. And, and there's really good ways to respond to both, but it's really helpful before you try to refute, find out what they actually mean. And that can take some time. Right. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, uh, kind of the, the sovereign zone view, right? This idea, I can do whatever I want with whatever is in my body without restriction is not necessarily the most powerful argument, maybe not necessarily the most common, uh, but it is some that you you hear from time to time, maybe kind yep. of like the, what we mentioned before, the other one of like, no, this is just like an organ. Maybe that's 1%. But hey, if it is that was, or if that's what the person is talking about, it's important to kind of know how to respond to that. So yeah. uh, I do want to spend more time on this right to refuse because that is what I've come up yeah. against and, and is the most persuasive or the most difficult to respond to. But if someone is using kind of that initial step or the initial maybe version of the my body, my choice saying, look, this is my body, therefore I can do whatever I want. Uh, how yeah. would you kind of walk through a conversation in, in helping, yeah. you know, kind of respond to that, helping them think through that objection or that comment? Yeah, so a sovereign zone comes up, there's a couple of things that we're doing. The first thing we're going to do is point out that this argument is an, is an inherently extremist argument that would say that, like, you can't make any abortions illegal. So, like, I'll give you one of my favorite stories uh, to tell, at least in front of audiences. It's like, funny stories never work as well in this, <laughs> with, with this, but whatever. Uh, we'll also imagine people enjoying this story from the computer. So everyone we at, enjoys um, it. <laughs> yes, of course. Right. Friendly audience. Yeah, Aquinas College, several years ago, again, 
same pole table. I'm behind it. A young pro-choice woman walks up and she starts her conversation, starts her conversation super chill. Why do you want to control women's bodies? And it's just like, okay, it's going to be one of these things. So I kind of like took a deep breath and I said, okay, I, I promise I will answer that question. But could I ask you a few first? I love finding common ground with people. And she says, fine. Like, okay. So I said, uh, do you think that abortion should be legal through all nine months or something less than that? And she said, no, no, no. I think like, I think a lot of people are talking about drawing the line around 20 weeks. And like, I think that makes sense to me. I think we could draw the line there. All right. Um, are there any reasons that you think women should not be allowed to have abortions? Um, and then she used a weird phrase here. I, the only purchase person that's ever used this phrase that pro-lifers use a lot that probably shouldn't. But she was like, oh, I'm against birth control abortions. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, like, like, like flippant uh, abortions. But she's like, but, you know, if they're really, really poor, or of course, if they're raped or something. And I'm for in, those, in that case. So, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you one more question. Um, and, I'm, and I said, I'm not trying to make fun of you, but why do you want to control women's bodies? And she was like, what? And I said, oh, well, you know, because you just said abortion should be illegal after right. 20 weeks and against the law if it's like a birth control abortion. So why are you trying to control women's bodies? And she said, well, I don't feel like I am. I said, well, neither am I. It's a bumper sticker slogan. Let's have a real conversation that goes <laughs> deeper than that. Can we do that? And she's like, okay. So it kind of like chills a little bit. And she's like, I just feel like women should have the right to do whatever they want with their body. And I said, okay, that is a very common pro-choice concern. I hear you. And bodily autonomy is really important. But your argument kind of disagrees with itself because you, like most pro-choice people I talk to, are opposed to like late-term abortions and, and super flippant abortions. But if the way you're grounding your view is that women can do anything they want with anything inside of their body, then you can't make any abortion illegal. You might be personally opposed to it or something, but you can't like control what other women do with their bodies. Now, pause the story. At this point, the pro-choice person has three options. They will either bounce over to personhood. They will like abandon bodily rights arguments altogether and jump over to personhood. Fine. Happy to have that conversation. They might, secondly, graduate up, upgrade their argument to a better argument, a right to refuse argument. She went the third option. It's like this light bulb. I could see the light bulb. Come on over her head, Ryan. And she says, you're right. I shouldn't be against any abortions. Well, I've got to go to class. Goodbye. And she walked away. <laughs> and, and I'm like, wait, <laughs> you know, I wasn't finished. And Jacob on our team was like, was watching this. I was like, wait a minute. Did you just make her more pro-choice? Like, what was that? So the conversation topic our team had on the rental van as we drove away from campus was whether or not this girl was worse off for having met me <laughs> and and we ended up deciding that she was better off and here's why is because he walked up to the table like many pro-choice people have with a inconsistent but comfortable pro-choice position and i made her walk away from the table with a consistent but very uncomfortable pro-choice position this is like the, you know greg Kokel talks about putting a pebble right. in her shoe like Right. Like we talk about like making people bite bullets. If they're going to bite bullets, we want them to be like an explosive round. We want it to be like a big deal. I want her walking away like I had to say that to not concede any ground. Like that's not good. Like I want her having that experience. Um, when that doesn't work, I'll say like the one other thing that we that we most often try um, will be. And this is uh, uh, something that Dr. Rich Papard 
um, first uh, talked about who used to, to do stuff with LTI. We talk about um, this, uh, this kind of really tragic story in modern medical history uh, about a drug called thalidomide. Mm-hmm. So thalidomide, for those of you that don't know, but some of you have already heard about this, is in the late 50s, early 60s, pregnant women who had like serious uh, nausea from their pregnancies were being given thalidomide um, as an anti-nausea medication. It can be used for other things. My dad had cancer and they were actually looking at, give, at using thalidomide, which is really interesting. Um, so it's still used for some things. But for several years, they were giving it to pregnant women, which doesn't happen anymore because they tragically found out that if you give a pregnant woman thalidomide, her baby is either going to die or is probably going to be born with severe uh, defects, like born without mm-hmm. arms and or legs. And there are still, like there was a Netflix documentary. I don't know if it's still there, um, but it was called No Body's Perfect. It was about like modern... They're still called thalidomide babies, um, but like they're in their 60s or 70s now and wow. still dealing with it. Like this is not just a thought experiment. This is like real people, yeah. um, which means we need to be really careful the way that we talk about it. But the way the argument works is it's like if a woman can do anything she wants with anything inside of her body, why would it be wrong for a pregnant woman to take thalidomide? Mm-hmm. Like there's this thing going on in the background where the human being has an amazing ability to believe what it wants to believe. We are very good at self-justifying like whatever like we need to, to, to live the way that we want to live. And so almost no pro-choice person though has like kind of trained their conscience to be like for giving thalidomide to pregnant women. So we're going around that wall and and a lot of times they'll be like, I don't think that would be okay. You know, so like we can give it this in thought experiment form. What if a woman had really severe nausea she knows that thalidomide would, would hurt her baby, but her husband's a doctor and she convinces her husband to get her thalidomide like under the counter kind of thing, uh, under the table. And so she takes it. Like that seems wrong. Now, sometimes virtuous people will still bite this bullet. So we can go one level more extreme. This is something that my brother Tim came up with where it's like, what if though, if she was taking thalidomide to intentionally deform her baby? Like it wasn't like this, like, I'm going to fix my nausea in spite of this thing happening. What if this is the purpose? And we're always like, this is not the way pro-choice people are. Or women having right. abortions are. This is a thought experiment. What if you had the, what if the woman in the last thought experiment goes, is pregnant a second time? And she's having a very different pregnancy experience. She's having a perfectly fine, you know, easy pregnancy experience or as easy as they can be. But maybe she likes the attention from, from having a disabled hmm. kid. Or maybe she feels like it would be unfair to have like a quote unquote perfect child now. So she takes thalidomide again for the sole purpose of deforming her child. Would that be wrong? And most pro-choice people have a hard time biting that bullet unless they're like a very strict utilitarian. Um, and so that's kind of the way that we'll try to push back. We'll just try to show, this is like that, as standard reason would say, taking the roof off. We're trying to show like, here's like, you know, this kind of, a, this is all reductio ad absurdum kind of stuff. This is right. the natural result of this view, which is why probably they should be making a right to refuse argument instead. How was that segue? <laughs> that was a great segue. And I'm going to take it back a second because it's like to, okay. to your story on the college campus <clears throat> because it just makes me yeah. so funny. It, it laughs. But I think what we have to recognize inside those conversations is there's a story that I know a buddy of mine was having a conversation with a high school student uh, who was a moral relativist. There's no such thing as objective mm-hmm. right and wrong. Everything is relative. And he goes, well, if you're going to hold that, then you have to believe that slavery and rape and genocide and these things are not actually wrong. It's just our preference. And the student was like, yeah, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to enslave no. people. It's not wrong to rape. It's not wrong. That, that's It's just things that we just don't like because of our cultural influence. And it was like, 
that's not what you're supposed to say. Like you're supposed to recognize, like right. we have an inherent understanding. <laughs> these things are wrong. This view doesn't allow me to say they're wrong. Therefore the view is wrong. And the student went, right. no, actually, yeah, you're right. Slavery is, is good for some yep. people. And it is. And it was like, yep. Oh dang. Well, a couple of like about a year or so later, this student ended up, I think, becoming a Christian and realizing, uh-huh. and it kind of, and I, <clears throat> Not necessarily that this was something the student said, but, you know, it's kind of a stepping stone process, I think, as you said, is like, yeah, for we, we can't forget if like there are some people that are going to maybe bite that bullet and say, yes, OK, I agree with this. And and yeah. we can't look at that as like this is a failure. I've lost them because it may be that thing that then later on they dwell on. They go, oh, my goodness, this is crazy what yeah. I said. Um, yeah. And I think also there's a value. Mean it too. Right. Absolutely. And I think there's also a value when this happens in my high school class with other issues. There's times where a student will hold a consistent view and say, okay, fine, Mm -hmm. I'll agree to X. And the rest of the class will go, what? Are you serious? And so I think, you know, maybe, you know, it it may not help them, but then I think it does help others who are listening. And they go, wow, if that's what you have to agree to, to be consistent, Maybe someone who's on that college campus just listening in on your conversation is going to say, okay, but I'm not going to, right? And so it may help others kind of see that. So I think that's valuable. Okay, so now into your perfect segue that I ruined. Um, This leads to... (laughs) Now now you make me want to talk about relativism versus utilitarianism, (laughs) but we can do that later if you want to. I've got that. It's another conversation. Okay. So, okay. So, all right. So we're kind of working through my body, my choice, probably not just it's an organ, kind of make that argument for personhood, probably not just even a sovereign view of I can do whatever I want, whenever I want with my body, but a more uh, advanced, more sophisticated, maybe more common uh, meaning for my body, my choice is, is this idea of I have this right to refuse. Um, I should not be forced to support life. And so if this now is kind of the, the argument that's being made, now where do we go from there? Yeah, great question. So, and, and this is where, like, the, like, so again, like Thompson's violinist argument comes right. into place. Like, one of the most famous thought experiments in modern philosophy is taught, as far as I can tell, in every philosophy 101. So, we hear it a lot on campuses because we're going places where, like, they're being taught one of the most interesting pro choice arguments. So, it's this, it's this thought, it's this, it's, he's got multiple thought experiments in this paper in 71, but the famous one is where, you know, you wake up in a hospital bed, you're hooked up to a guy in a coma in the bed next to you. Head of the hospital comes in and says, I'm so sorry. Let me, I'm so glad you're awake. Let me explain what's going on. You were kidnapped. So like that guy is a world famous violinist uh, with a kidney problem. And you were kidnapped by the society of music lovers. And somehow they figured out that you're a kidney mess. And so they kidnapped you, they hooked you both up and then they left you here. And I'm so sorry, this is so unjust, but here's the problem. The violinist is a person. He has a right to life. So we can't unplug you or he will die. But the good news is you only have to be here for nine months and then he'll be viable and you guys can, we can unconnect you and everyone can go their, their merry way. And most people's response to, actually, let me say first, notice how interesting the argument is for pro-lifers who have not heard that before. Like one of my favorite stories about that, I actually quote this, Greg Kokel, the first time he heard that argument, uh, he, he, he says he was driving and heard this like on talk radio. And he had to pull the car over because he was like, oh, my gosh, maybe that's like a winning argument kind of a thing. And so uh, so it's really interesting. It doesn't it doesn't end up working, um, but it uh, but not for some of the reasons that pro-life people think there's kind of some lame pro-life responses to this. I'll leave that at like dangling. If you want to go there, we can go there. But I'll just go straight to like what we do, like the two, I think, most important or helpful responses. One, and this is not our argument. We just teach that it is very helpful. 
Um, a lot of people call this the responsibility objection. This is pointing out a, a, a difference uh, between that analogy and pregnancy. Um, so in, the, in, in Thomas's analogy, you were kidnapped, which is not typically the way pregnancy begins, right? <laughs> and so, so the responsibility <laughs> objection says that when you have consensual sex, you're engaging in an act that you know might result in an inherently needy or vulnerable child that you now owe compensation to. Um, and, and so here's a, like a thought experiment version of that. I think we all think this came from Beckwith, but we're not even sure. It's definitely not me. So there's a room with a baby making machine in it, right? It's like a Coke machine. You push a button and then, and then there's a tube or a chute at the bottom. And if you push the button, you have a very pleasurable experience. But every once in a while, a baby comes out, fully formed newborn baby. So everyone's tracking. We've simplified pregnancy. Okay. So a guy walks up to the machine, let's say. He wants the pleasurable experience. He does not want to have a kid. He is kind of rolling the dice from his perspective, but he does right. push the button. And what do you know? A baby does come out. It seems pretty obvious to most pro-choice people that he can't just walk away and leave it to starve to death. And it seems even more obvious that he can't like directly kill it. He can't like bash his brains in. Why? Because it seems morally relevant that he pushed the button. In other words, and like, and then he knew that could happen. So like, in other words, he engaged in an act that he knew might result in the creation of an inherently needy or vulnerable child that he owes compensation to. So you see now Ezra has to care for this child or he has to transfer that care to someone else. But it matters that he pushed the button. Now that is a very helpful response and can get you about 99% of the way there. Because a lot of first people will be like, that makes sense. And if that makes sense, um, then unless they're relying on a personhood argument also, that should make them 99% pro-life. But obviously, and everyone listening knows, this argument doesn't get you all the way there because it does right. not respond to abortion in the case of rape. Right. And so we need something else there. Yeah. And I want to get to that here in a second. Um, you yeah. Know, it, 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 I, there are times where I feel like in this this conversation where where whether you, well I feel like the need to bring up especially with students maybe sometimes today is this idea that like pregnancy is not a it's not a mistake we talk about these like mistaken things or oh I had a mistake I got pregnant um, you know and, and kind of again helping people recognize like no when you get pregnant after having sex like that is the the system functioning properly right that is what it has been designed to do and so as you kind of mentioned this baby making machine it's not like oh the machine is broken out came a baby right. no the machine is designed to make a baby and it doesn't always make one but it is designed to make one right. when you push the button and i think that is sometimes a, a a needed uh you know not always but sometimes a needed clarification of it's not that this system is broken and it's not supposed to be making a baby but sometimes it does right. no it's designed to make a baby and sometimes it doesn't and and yeah. i think that it's, we've gotten away a, we've gotten away from that and it's like no it's like I, I had a mistake this was not supposed to happen it's like i know you yeah. didn't want it to happen but that's what naturally happens when the system is working properly yeah, I think that's a really good point, and it's com completely accurate. Like, my, my wife is in pre-nursing school and learning all kinds of things about physio physiology, including about, about, like, fetal development. And there's so many things I'm learning now, like, even beyond what I used to know, that's, like, so clear how there's this system functioning really well. The hard thing is, at a pragmatic level, that argument doesn't tend to be that persuasive to the pro-choice people that we talk to. 
Yeah. Because what happens is ultimately they kind of realize this is a teleological argument. There's like an argument from design thing happening. And most of the atheists we talk to just don't think that your body parts were designed by anyone. They think it evolved that way. And that's like, it's really helpful that our eyes see, but like they wouldn't draw any moral and certainly like legal obligations from that. So it's this frustrating thing where that's, this is a really important point. And yet I don't get into it that often with pro-choice people just because I almost always have more at least in our experience, more persuasive directions to go. But yeah. if, like, if I'm talking to pro-choice Christian and there are those, this is a really good direction to go. Like if, assuming they believe in some version of intelligent design or something, which, you know, if they're really Christian, they kind of have to, um, then that can be really effective with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that is a really good point that you make is, is it's not necessarily like, okay, now what are the legal implications necessarily that we draw from this? Uh, sometimes it's just kind of a change in perspective. And, you know, I've yeah. heard people put it this way and you may say, oh yeah, that's one of those maybe cliches that we use. It's not, you know, uh, the best, but it's like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, eating horribly, you know, sugary and fatty foods and then you get pregnant. It's like, no, that's what happens when you do that. It's not like a, a mistake. And so it's, you, you, I you guess mean when, 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 when you gain weight after you, right. When you gain weight. Yeah. Or yeah. sorry, I, I say get pregnant. You don't, I think. You, don't yeah. you don't get pregnant as a result of it. But yeah, I, I know what you meant. <laughs> gain. Yeah. When you gain weight. And it's, so sometimes it's not necessarily like, therefore here's this argument, but it's like, sometimes I yeah. think just changing that, that frame set, yeah. or that mindset of saying, yeah, um, this is not like a, oh, I'm not supposed to gain weight when I eat. This is something weird happened, something off happened. Yeah. And I need to deal with that off problem versus no, like you have to recognize there's a natural consequence to our decisions. And again, they may say, yeah, yeah there's a natural consequence. And again, I'm okay with it. And that's why, again, the, this right to refuse kind of argument is good. Now you, again, mentioned, and, and we do want to get to, okay, this helps with maybe 99%. But again, the most um, uh, emotionally weighty, and, and difficult to respond to is going to be, as you mentioned, this right to refuse in the case of rape. And so um, yeah. you can't use personal responsibility there uh, because this woman nope. did not choose to push that button. Um, now, you know, kind of where do we go? Yeah. Yeah. So so let me make a comment before I get into philosophy mode, because there's, there's a mistake that people like you and me can make sometimes accidentally where it starts sounding when we talk about really sensitive topics like rape, like we're still like solving a philosophical Rubik's cube um, and can right. get like really nerdy and kind of robotic about it. It's really important for pro-life people to not do that. So just right. like, just like in general, let me just like talk just a few minutes about how I think best we can respond to the topic of rape when it comes up. And then we will get into philosophy mode because we have Perfect. to in this case. Yeah. But like we need justice for all is really, really good on this topic. It's like we have to acknowledge how horrible rape is first before you talk about the unborn because it doesn't seem like you're a very humane person if you just start with like, well, why should the baby be punished for his father's crime? As if that's the reason these women have abortions. Anyway, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to them. And so I, I've, I have to spend some time, at least a minute, just talking about how horrible rape is and how it's one of the worst things I know about and our society is screwed up. I still hear people sometimes, including at like a pro-life conference one time, who are saying things like, well, if women didn't dress this way or whatever, then maybe they wouldn't get raped. Like that still happens. That's not, no. not okay. Let's blame the rapist. Um, our legal system has issues. There's still like police stations with hundreds of untested rape kits that are just not being prioritized. That's insane. And then if C gets pregnant, he's committed, I think, multiple moral crimes against her. He forced himself on her and he has now forced her to become a mother. And so he should go to jail for a super, super long time 
Yeah. And now she's going to make maybe the most difficult decision of her life. She's got right. three choices, right? She can either carry to term, which I think is the right thing to do, and and then either parent the child, uh, or she might offer the child up for adoption, or she might hire a doctor to kill her child in the womb. And I think he should be punished for all of that. But, and this is kind of like, we don't do sound bites that often, but this is like a really helpful sound bite, is one of the reasons that I am against rape is that it is an act of violence against an innocent person. Mm. And one of the, and the reason I'm against abortion is because it's an act of violence against an innocent person. So like, notice I spent 95% of that on compassion and common ground and talking about how horrible rape is, and then try it in like a, a sentence to kind of make a pro-life argument. We can do thought experiments and try it out toddlers uh, there too. Um, but that's, so that's kind of the way we respond at first. But yeah. if they're responding in bodily rights mode to the responsibility objection by, by combining the right to refuse case with rape, then we need to respond philosophically. And so yeah. the, Here, really the quick, really are, quick before we, yeah. yeah, before we get into philosophy, I think as we've mentioned it multiple times, I think is another relevant uh, marker here is, is this kind of compassion and, and not being yeah. so flippant as pro-lifers. And I've heard flippant responses, uh, but like, oh, well, but it's a human being. So you can't just kill it because, you know, and, and, and that even, I heard a pro-life apologist say that and it upset a group of pro-life students. And so you're, you're, you're talking mm. to people that should be in yep. agreement with you and the students recognize like there is a problem here of how that response yeah. was. But I also think that pro-lifers, and I don't know if I heard you say this or if I heard it somewhere else, um, pro-lifers will sometimes very flippantly throw out the the option of, of adoption and say, well, you can yeah. always adopt them out. And it's just this very flippant thing of not, and not really sitting through the weight yeah. of giving up your child, right? Even if you yeah. did not necessarily want this child, there is a, a chemical bonding. There, there is a, there's a beautiful thing that happens during pregnancy of women bonding with their child and to give that yeah. child up, even if uh, they did not necessarily want the pregnancy to begin with, is not an easy thing. It's not like, a, oh, yeah, well, yeah, just no problem. I'll just give it up. And so we sometimes have to sit in the weight of that as well and not often not offer these kind of maybe flippant responses of, oh, yeah, you yeah. can always adopt a child. So what's the problem? Um, well, that, that's a difficult issue, that. too. Yeah, it's not the silver bullet that pro-lifers expect it to be. Like, it's just so right. easy. Just do this instead. Like, like for, first of all, like, note that very few women who have, who have the baby end up offering for adoption, even if it was an unplanned pregnancy. Like, that's very rare. Right. Um, and people can argue about whether or not that's a bad thing or not. But I did. A, I had a really—my my thinking has been changed about that in the, this in the last year um, because I've been kind of like most pro-lifers. Like, of course, let's support adoption and things like that. And, uh, and I had a, we had a series of interviews on our podcast, uh, the Equip for Life podcast, with a, a new friend of mine named Robin Atkins, who is uh, a counselor, has done a lot of like social work and work uh, with foster kids and stuff. And she really helped me to understand, like even as a pro-life person with a philosophy background, that we are learning more right now in the social sciences about the gravity of the trauma of adoption even to the kid. Like mm. as, as selfless and loving of an act, it often is for the parents who do right. it. It is still really, really hard, typically speaking on the kid. And I think pro-lifers jump to this too quick as this kind of like nice alternative. Like we have bumper stickers, adoption, the loving option or whatever. Um, and and cyber counselors too. It's so like cyber counselors, we basically think should almost never bring up adoption on the sidewalk. We have a sidewalk counseling course and, and, and we talked about that there, but it's like almost, almost never. It sounds weird to them. It sounds like 
you're you want to take their baby or you're saying that they yeah. actually can't do this it's not helpful to them psychologically um but yeah so pro-lifers need to be careful about this this is again this is very different than where most pro-lifers talk about it but i i am seeing a movement uh of people now kind of recognizing a, a more kind of balanced nuanced way of thinking about it i'm glad yeah, i'm glad I, you brought it up yeah i think it was actually katie faust at the maven conference talking about you know it, what we what we often sacrifice for kids but then also how we are sacrificing our kids right and if you're ever asking your mm. kid to sacrifice uh then that's probably not the best thing and mm. um you know when talking about uh, a large range of things and there's some context there that helps understand that better but yeah. uh, but this idea she talked about is the sacrifice we're asking uh, for the for the child uh, to to give up a birth mother to give up you know that and and to be in a different you know situation yeah. is, is not should not be the first and, and quickest response that we go to so with yeah. that uh, interjection again interrupting your perfect segue no, and flow of thought no, good. <laughs> let's get into <laughs> a little bit of that philosophy that you mentioned yeah so, so we've changed our approach on this in the last uh, last uh, two or three years um and this is what we like to do like we we want to be super kind of nimble and flexible as an apologetics organization we figure out that something's working better we want to change really really yeah. fast and so we used to make an argument uh that was basically like the woman has, even in the case of rape, if she's pregnant, she has like this obligation to help the baby. Like there's certain kind of cases, and we came up with thought experiments with with uh, with Steve at Justice for All, where like you like even if you're not related to a kid, if you're the only adult in the vicinity and you can temporarily kind of take care of this child and help them to not die with basic care, then you have this obligation. And I have seen that work sometimes, but frankly, young people are the bodily autonomy thing is becoming so extreme that a lot of times we're just seeing people bite the bullet. They say, like, women shouldn't ever even be forced to breastfeed their own babies, even if that is the only way for their baby to eat and survive. Like, like their view about bodily autonomy is that extreme. Wow. And so we have shifted our approach from that to, uh, instead of an obligation to help approach, an obligation to not freaking kill people approach. Like, we're talking more about intentional direct killing and it was just something that you know people like 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 back with uh have have done before and i think we were undervaluing before and so what what i have found is i think one of the reasons there's so much confusion around the topic of abortion if, even from pro-choice people is because they think of pregnancy as being like other cases where you've got options to either help or or not help so for example if if i have a kidney problem and somehow I find out that you, Ryan, uh, are a match, and I ask you politely for your kidney, for a kidney donation from you. You have three options. You can help me by donating your kidney. You could not help me by saying thanks, but no thanks. Or there's a third option. You could literally kill me. Like, maybe you're so codependent, you're super uncomfortable with the idea of a colleague knowing that you turned him down for a kidney, and so you kill me. Those are three distinct options. And a lot of people think of pregnancy as being like that, but it's not. From pregnancy is one of those cases where there's only two options. You can either help by carrying to term or you can kill. So it's more like if you took a boat, like let's say you've got a boat and you go out uh, into, you know, a few miles out into shore, uh, from shore, and, and then you discover that there's like an eight-year-old boy hiding on your boat. He was playing hide and seek at the docks with his parents. He's kind of a dumb kid. And he just decided to go on a stranger's boat uh, and hide and very successfully uh, hid. And now 
you have this situation. There, this is now like pregnancy. I think it's actually more like pregnancy than Thompson's violinist case. You've got two options. You can either help him by going back to shore and helping him find his parents or at least like getting him to like the authorities or something. Or you can throw him overboard and and he's dead. Like I've heard one person try to be like, well, maybe he could swim back to shore. No. Great swimmer. No. <laughs> he, no, he's not that good of a swimmer. He is shark food now or he's going to drown. Like it's just like one of those two things. So that's, and I think if those are your only two options, then you have this, we have an obligation to not kill people. We don't have an obligation always to help people. Um, but if my choices are either to donate a kidney or to take a machete and directly kill you by dismemberment, I think in that case, then I do have to give you the kidney. I have this mm. obligation to not kill you. Um, we can never directly kill innocent people. And given that the unborn is a person, which we argue with the equal rights argument, then we can't kill the unborn, even though, yes, it is in your body. There's kind of this interdependency thing going on, um, but we can't kill them uh, just because they're in the way. We've got to at least, like if we could Star Trek beam the baby out into an artificial womb or a surrogate, fine. Like there's some kind of like moral issues that that kind of brings up too. But like in the end, like I would totally go with that compromise if we could end abortion that way. Um, but unfortunately we can't. And so until the baby's viable, like there's just no other option but to kill it. And it's always wrong to kill children. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love that analogy and thinking through again, it's not those three options. It's not just the right to refuse to help. Um, and, and I almost think like, you know, I, I think of the, the reasons that people often give, right, of you, you have to let uh, allow for abortion to stay legal or else, you know, women will have to drop out of school or it'll change their career or, you know, it'll really kind of disrupt life plans. And so I think, you know, if the, the add on to your analogy, it's like it's, it's not just taking your boat out a few miles from shore and having some fun. It's, it's like you are going on a voyage uh, on your yeah. yacht to another country and maybe you're sailing from San Francisco to, I don't know, Japan or something. And you you make it to Hawaii for your first stop and realize now an unwanted child, right? The, the child snuck right. onto the boat. And it's like, do you continue your voyage and say, well, whatever this kid's with, or do you have to turn around and take that kid back to home? Yeah. And again, recognizing, you know, or throw him overboard. I guess you could leave him in Hawaii. I my poor. I got to take out Hawaii out of it. But anyways, um, yeah, you recognize like, Hey, this may disrupt your plants. This yeah. may change what you in have huge ways. in a huge way, but you still can't just throw the kid overboard. Um, yeah, and, I'm and really so, glad you brought it up because pro-lifers, as, as flippant as we can be about, about adoption, we can also be really flippant about pregnancy. Yeah, Like as if it's like no big deal. I think this especially happens with like young conservatives who have never been pregnant. And we just think of it like this is beautiful thing that God set up. It's like we love families and we love kids and stuff. And it's like pregnancy sucks. For like in so many ways, in every pregnancy experience, there's a range, right? Um, some pregnancies are harder than others, but we need to be really careful, especially the pro-life dudes. You got to be really careful to like not underappreciate how difficult and life-changing pregnancy is, not right. to mention uncomfortable or and painful as childbirth is and, and all of that. Yeah, well, yeah, my my wife gave birth. My son is four months old now, and and I think someone was I forget who was someone talking about like you know you, you have to wait a couple of years before you get pregnant again, just long enough for you to rem forget how that experience was <laughs> right. to to where you're willing to go through it again, right? And it's not yes. like oh that was so amazing, I can't wait to go through giving birth again. It's like yeah. no, you have to wait enough time to where you forget what happened. <laughs> you got to at least be sleeping through the night again before yeah. you're willing to like go back to the <laughs> exactly exactly. Well, again. Um, um, 
wow. So I, I've, I've, I've loved kind of hearing this again and, and being able to ask some of my own questions and think through this. Cause I think, again, this is something that I felt like I was lacking as I listened to you and I learned, and I'm hoping that other people learn as well. And so kind of, as we finish up our time here, um, what I guess would maybe be your encouragement? What what would be kind of your motivation uh, kind of to to those listening saying like, hey, man, yeah. get out and do this or, or change this or, or or how do you want to better equip or, or see people, you know, change to to become more effective, more persuasive uh, people for this cause? Boy, talk, talk about like an easy softball pitch to me. Thank you for that. Okay, actually, I actually really like this question right now because I've got an analogy I've been using lately that I really like. So, uh, so I, so, you know, for almost all pro-lifers probably at this point now, but just in case you don't know, there is a really big Supreme Court case right now right. Uh, where it, it, it called Dobbs v. Jackson uh, Women's Health. And uh, this is the case uh, that actually might overturn Roe. I actually think, uh, uh, you know, we, our team listened to the oral arguments live. We live streamed about it the next night. So if people who want to get really nerdy about what happened uh, there, they could find that that, that replay in, in our podcast feed. But um, I have always been very pessimistic about Roe versus Wade being overturned. And I have flipped. I now think mm. if you have to bet money, there's multiple ways the case can go. Um, and we'll probably find out in June. But I think this best, the smartest betting money is actually that they overturn Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood, wow. um, which is uh, surreal to be sane, which yeah. means that, like pro-lifers are going to be thinking about what a post-Roe pro-life movement ought to look about. That's like the one thing I am going to be thinking about this entire year. It's the only thing I, I mm. can think about. But also, that really affects our dialogues. Yeah. I've been saying for the last few years that our conversation with purchase people were going to be getting harder anyway. Um, I, that started with Kavanaugh getting on the court. Um, then you've got Barrett getting on the court. You've got the election fraud, whatever people want to call that whole thing, January 6th. And then, you know, Dobbs, well, actually, then Texas happens, and Texas did what Texas did, uh, which is super controversial. And then now the Dobbs case, where it looks like Roe versus Wade might get overturned. Hmm. So pro-choice people are furious and terrified right. at the same time. And th that's going to make our conversations harder. And I saw that, uh, uh, what, two weeks ago at Boston College when we did outreach. Hmm. Like, that is a pretty typically tame campus when it comes to dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that is the hardest outreach that club has ever had. And I think this is, this is why. So yeah. here's what that means for pro-lifers. I've been thinking about one of my favorite TV series of all time, Band of Brothers. Um, so this is this amazing HBO series. It's about the first, about Easy Company, the first, like one of the first paratroop, uh, you know, uh, units that are in World War II. Like these are the soldiers that literally jump out of planes and parachute behind enemy lines, and, and that's how they, they get set up to fight. This company, their first day of battle was on D-Day, <laughs> behind enemy lines. But the first episode of Band of Brothers is not about that. That's episode two. Episode one is all about their boot camp, their training. It was this grueling training uh, where they're climbing up, you know, this, you know, Kirhi Hill, which is basically the small mountain there's like a mile and a half each way. And they're having to do it like multiple times a day. And like, people are just like, you know, it's like, it's so hard. They actually think of like the guy running them is like all like sociopathic or something like that. Like, why is he so cruel and mean? Uh, and they did not realize that they were, they needed this to get prepared for what they were going into and what they were going into would eventually get even worse than their training. Like they were, they ended up like having to like stuck in the snow, like on like the Eastern, you know, kind of side 
and like for you know months without like even proper winter gear like horrible horrible conditions and that training helped them with that okay so the analogy is pretty obvious like people generally think of boot camp in peacetime is less important than when you're in wartime you just take it more seriously and a lot of pro-life people have i think pretty laissez-faire about pro-life apologetics because we think of this as a really simple issue um and like we just got to explain like it's wrong to kill babies it's just about like you know is it a human being or not and it, it is more complicated than that philosophically and emotionally and these conversations are way harder now yeah. because of what is going on which means we need to like this is boot camp time y'all like mm. we gotta like get and find the best stuff get ready for these conversations and expect maybe you don't know the most effective uh pro-life arguments right now because we are changing the way that we teach every year from uh, our experiences on campuses. And so learn with us, try to figure out how to best have these conversations, both as far as the arguments, but again, also how to do it in loving, gracious, productive ways. How do you get their walls down, get them to not be defensive so they can actually hear you when you make your good pro-life arguments? Those are the kinds of things that, that we teach and it is really, really important to be doing. We need more pro-lifers making good arguments taking bodily rights arguments as seriously as they ought to be and being persuasive. This is the most important year for this, for these dialogues we've had in at least 20. Well, well, I'm glad I threw that softball question at you. Cause that was, that was a home run of a shot right <laughs> there. You, I, I love that response. <laughs> and that is why down in the description below, I have all of your information. That's why I had you on the show is I, I thought that you just have so much to offer here and, and so much that is needed. So I have all your links to your website, your YouTube and everything down below. I'm yes. going to have to add your TikTok and others. Um, but, uh, uh, any other kind of last thing of, of where people can go, um, to kind of those listeners to this go wow i want to dig into this deeper you mentioned a podcast what was that called again so the podcast is called equip for life people okay. can find that wherever you find podcasts on spotify and, and apple and, and things like that um we've got a, a couple hundred articles on our blog uh, that they can find and if they want a more systematic approach like all that's free and there's a lot of youtube videos and stuff in fact also if you're tired of like really um kind of depressing ab abortion videos like we try to sometimes have fun like i'll like react to dialogue scenes and movies and tv shows just kind of talk about like what's going well what's not going well we also have a quick response series where we respond to like every purchase argument in four minutes or less if you just want like the quickest most persuasive things we have that but if you want a more systematic approach where we're organizing all the best content in one place for you then we have an online course also called equip for life that's only 50 bucks for a permanent membership to that and that's kind of where we keep on just having like our best stuff in one place. It's five wonderful. hours long. You can binge it. It's, it's really easy. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, Josh, man, this has been so much fun. It was great meeting you. Nice. It was great having this conversation. Thank you for you coming too. on and, and, and sharing and talking with me. This has been great. Thank you for great questions. It is always so fun just hanging out with apologists like you or, 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 or Tim as standard reason. And we could just do this for hours and hours and hours. So hopefully yes, we get we to could. do it again sometime. Yep, absolutely. And eventually, hey, all fun has to come to an end eventually, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you. 
All right, everybody else, thank you so much for listening. I hope, again, as my goal was to help you think clearly and critically about this issue, but then learn how to more effectively and persuasively respond. I hope that was met on this issue. My goal is always to help you think deeply about Christianity and engage your mind so that you can more effectively engage the culture around you. So if you've enjoyed this, please like it, share it, subscribe, uh, get it to someone else who needs to hear this and benefit from this, as well as follow up conversations in the future on a wide range of other topics that you might enjoy as well. So thank you so much for being here, for being part of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. Guide my